the next part of our time, we, we have the uh, privilege and, and opportunity to hear um, a, a story of how God has been working in the life of, of one of our brothers here. Um, Josh Shin is um, married to um, Samina, who's the father of Connor and Jalen Shin, and his story has been, um, as he'll share, a story that's continually being written, but a story that's been completely uh, captured and, and, and turned and flipped upside down by the grace of God, particularly in the past uh, few weeks and months. So I'm going to invite Josh to come as he comes. Let's give him a round of applause. It's encouraging as he stays with us. Father, for this opportunity to stand before you and this congregation, that it is only you, because of you, I am here today to give my testimony. I ask that as I share my life story, that it be a powerful testament of your gracious love, redemption, restoration, and salvation, that let it resonate beyond the walls of this church. I ask for courage as I share my story. In Jesus' name I pray. God. I'll try my best to. Um, some of you know me as Josh. Um, some of you know me as Connor and Jalen's father. Um, some of you know me as um, Osoyo's yogurt person. Um, lately, I've been getting the Korean version of Lawrence Fishburne. So, um, but I think the general consensus is that most of you don't really know me. Uh, so before I introduce myself, I'd like to share part of my story with you. Um, unfortunately, I can't share most of it because the story isn't finished. But I'm going to show. I'm going to share, let's say, the introduction, acknowledgement, and forward of my life. Um, my family came to the United States via Argentina in 1979 and settled in Los Angeles, California. I am the youngest of three children. Today, my parents reside in Las Vegas. Um, my father is a retired pastor. Mom works at Macy's. My sister, her husband, and three daughters are in Africa serving God as missionaries for Wycliffe Bible Translators. My brother is serving time at a state penitentiary in Carson City, Nevada. He has been either in prison or running away um, from prison most of his life. And then there's me. I'm uh, neither in prison nor uh, in the mission field serving God. The eyes of this world, um, I am probably the most sane and normal of the three. Business person living in middle-class suburban neighborhood in Central Florida with a wife and two kids, a cute white multi-poo, and attending Harvest Church. But I will tell you why my life was anything but normal. For the past 20 years, I've had this resentment and distrust towards the church and the so-called Christians who go to church. I've been able to compress all the hurt, the pain, depression, emotion into a zip file and store it away. You see, I grew up in a church because my father became an elder and then a pastor. I grew up in a Christian family that was controlled by fear and verbal and physical abuse. We attended church every Sunday, participated in church events. But I didn't think of myself as Christian, as a Christian because of what I was, what I was and did outside of the church. I was perfectly okay not being Christian because of the hypocrisy I saw within the church and within my family. I joined an Asian gang at the age of 14, following the footsteps of my older brother and in, rebel in rebellion to my father. I found myself experimenting with drugs, alcohol, and sex. I found myself being violent as a defense mechanism. By the time I was 17, I had been arrested several times my family had attended more than a dozen different churches um, in the L.A. area. My parents moved churches either because of fighting in the church or because my parents were ashamed of the things my brother and I caused in the church. The last church I attended during my youth had several gang members, all children of church members or elders. We were all silently crying out for help, but no one heard our cries. 
would get high, would get would get high and drunk before the before and after church services. Would be be involved in sexual activities with people inside and outside the church. Would intimidate newcomers if we didn't look, if we didn't like the way they they looked at us. Everyone knew we were the bad ones. They all chose to ignore us. We're, we're just too scared to approach them. Until one day, a courageous older brother decided to invest in us and became our Sunday school teacher. But we were too strong, and in a matter of months, he joined us in what we were doing. Our group was going in church. We just added a Sunday school teacher. My last memory of church was something that I carried and stored away in that zip file for over 20 years. This was a after a winter retreat where I believed that God had planted a small seed in me, in all of us. The events on the last day of the retreat would change my life and my view of church for a very, very long time. Um, God decided to take my friend Alan's life away that day. I saw him laying there with the back of his head blown away by a gun. understand this and kept seeking answers. Why Alan? Why at 17? Why such a gruesome death? Why? Why? This incident tore our group apart, as well as some people in the church. I was lost and confused. All this time we attended church. We knew we were bad. Um, We were gangsters. We didn't pretend to be good, but all these churchgoers, supposedly Christians, why were they acting this way, blaming, fighting, and hating each other? Where was God? Why did some people at church say he deserved to die? I couldn't find answers in the church, so I left. After that event, I lost two other friends in gang warfare, so I decided that it was time for me to move on from that lifestyle. I was fortunate to be able to leave that gang because of my older brother's influence in the gang. Of course, it wasn't a free pass. I got jumped out, a.k.a. meaning I took a good beating. Um, Over the course of the next several years, I found myself doing much better without the church in my life. I was living my life by my rules. I got myself involved with another group that was all about the C-note. Money equal power, and that made all the sense to me. I was involved in drugs, extortion, prostitution, fraud. Fraud that would make Frank Abinal, the story behind Catch Me If You Can, look like child's play. I was living the life, and God was nowhere to be found, or was he? After several years of this life, I realized I was on a path to either prison or death. I was always paranoid, constantly looking over my shoulder and checking people for wires, even those closest to me. But this, that is when God sent an angel to help me get out of this lifestyle. He did it in a creative and funny way. He brought someone into my life that made me feel like an idiot. Yes, I had the money, cars, nice clothes, my own place, and everything you can ask for. But I didn't have an education, so I decided to get one. Once again, I was able to disappear into the background of this underground organization because of a brother, not my birth brother, who had some influence and always said he saw something different in me. It took some time. It took some time, but eventually I I disappeared and closed that chapter of my life. I moved back home, got a job, attended City College. In 1996, my parents moved to Las Vegas. That year, I got accepted um, into the University of Southern California. Nobody could have imagined me at USC, a university. My parents' hope for my brother and I was not to become a doctor, lawyer, but just to stay alive. I could confidently say that not only did I meet their expectations, I exceeded them. In 1999, I graduated with top honors from USC. My mom and dad wept that day. Of course, I didn't know until I saw a video of them later. Um, They would never cry like that in front of me. And I was doing just fine without the church or Christians. I did attend church occasionally for social reasons, but it was very limited. Fast forward 10 years to the present. In uh, February 2010, my wife and 
kids joined me, and uh, shortly thereafter, my wife found Harvest through the internet. We decided to check it out because we wanted some church exposure in Connor and Jalen's life. Uh, plus, there wasn't so much to do on Sundays, and uh, I had no idea what was about to occur. I think God has slowly begun the healing process in me from day one at Harvest. I noticed something different, but couldn't pinpoint it. I was so impressed and in awe of the youth here. I started feeling inadequate, unclean, dirty, and filthy among people here at Harvest. Because of all the things I had done in my past, things I had thought were stored away started surfacing. It felt like a reverse spiritual detox. I tried to avoid conversations because I didn't know how to carry one on. I felt God knocking but couldn't understand why. Why here at this church located in the middle of an orange grove? Why in Orlando? Why now? I dismissed it, but he kept knocking. I started slowly seeing changes in my life. My wife and I started attending house church. I started wanting to clean the church on Sundays because that was the only thing I knew how to do. I didn't know how to play an instrument. I didn't want to greet people because I was socially awkward at church. And when I heard about Tico, the door was unlocked. So God took one step closer. I didn't open it yet. I just unlocked it. I saw how strong and powerful the church was as everyone came together and prayed for Tico. I saw how the prayers went beyond the walls of our church and reached different continents. I saw hope in the church and in God that I never knew existed. I wished and longed that 20 years ago, when my friend Alan died, I could have witnessed and experienced his body with Christ. And together as one. I heard testimony from Tico's friends and brothers in Christ. I felt a sense of guilt that I could have said hello and gotten to know I attended the same church and worshipped in the same room with Tico for over a year. And I never said hello. I felt saddened but was encouraged because I felt something after so many years of numbness. Then the revival came with Pastor Dave Choi. The words he spoke, the words he spoke were like honey. It was my story. I felt like God was talking to me directly. The second night, he made an altar call. I didn't know if I was giving my life to Christ for the first time or not. But I didn't care. I just desired prayer. I couldn't comprehend what was going on. I just followed and obeyed. Over the next couple of days, everything became so clear. I felt God pouring his love into my life. I was so overwhelmed. I really didn't know what to do with it. I will have to admit, I started giggling in the middle of the night because I, the love I felt was so special, pure, so childlike. I started realizing that he continued to pursue me all these years, even though I rejected him so many times. I started thinking about the things in my past, and I couldn't figure logically how I made it here alive. I felt the huge burden of all the sins I, I was carrying just lifted up, and God took it. He took it all. I didn't feel the guilt anymore, but pure excitement of how God was going to use me in the future. I realized how big and great our God is. No matter how dark our sins are, our God can handle them. I gave my life to him and acknowledged that he is my personal Savior. Since then, I've never felt so loved. My name is Josh. I'm a blessed child of God. I'm a prince in the heavenly kingdom. I'm your brother in Christ. Thank you. Let's pray. Thank you, Josh. Bravely testifying. up here. Second Corinthians chapter five, sixteen through twenty one. 
I longed that there would be more stories like that that rise up out of our midst when people begin to see the beauty of God played out through the church, through the wonder of the gospel. What would it take for that to happen? What would it take for that to happen? Second Corinthians 5, verses 16 through 21. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God's word, beautiful words of life and grace and gospel. What would it take for us to see greater things in, in our lives, in our church, through our church, in our people, and those people that you are praying for, and those people whose names you may write down? I want to encourage you to think about as you listen and as we go through this time, who are the people in your life that you would love to see stand and share a testimony of God's power and grace in your life? A couple things that I just want to point out here. The first thing, in order for us to, to be able to, to witness the greater work of God is we need to see, see people the way that God sees, see what God sees, see them as he does. Verse 16, it says, so from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. What does it mean for us to regard people from a worldly point of view? This is how we all begin. We enter life in this way. We look at people from worldly lenses. How does the world look at people? It, 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 it seeks, our world seeks to define people in a certain way. We define, I think our world defines people in, in one of two ways at least, but um, to generalize. One, I think the world looks at people according to all of their wins, and it begins to define them according to that, right? We, we look at people, just look around, and when you introduce yourselves, what is it that we say? We, we, we talk about people and say, hey, do you know this person? We, be, we define them by the things that define uh, their identity in terms of the wins that they have. Well, they make a lot of money, or they're the really beautiful-looking one, or they're the one who drives the really nice car, or they're the one who went to the Ivy League school, or they're the one who uh, has this amazing uh, family or this amazing home or whatever it is, we define people oftentimes by their wins. And we look at, oftentimes we look at people who we consider to be winners in the eyes of the world, and we say, what could, what could they possibly need? See, when we see people from a worldly point of view, it keeps us from entering into this place and, and this space where we can see the greater things of God. Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like when we define people according to the world's ways, like these guys are winners, they don't need anything. What could I offer to them? That's, that's part of what Josh was saying when he was at the, uh, at the uh, before he went to the university is I had everything. I had money, I had fame, I had riches, and people could easily have looked at him and said, you know what, what could he possibly need when deep in his heart there was this sense in which he was aching for God who was calling out to him. And when we define people and look at people according to the ways of the world and say, oh, they're, they're a winner and they don't need anything from me, it keeps us from experiencing... It keeps us from experiencing that, that greater work of God. But another way that the world defines people is not only by their wins, but by their sins. We say, I don't want to bring the gospel to them because they're so bad. The world looks at people and they look at their mistakes. And if they, we, if they don't have a lot of wins, they define them by their mistakes, by their sins. And we look at these people and we begin to define and categorize them according to all the mistakes that they've made. They're the druggie. They're the gangbanger. They're the promiscuous ones. They're the ones who've dropped out of school. That's who they are, and we define them according to that. 
And, and if you look at what God says in verse 19, it says God was not counting men's sins against them. If we begin to see with new eyes, then we don't count people's sins against them. We don't view them, judge them according to their sins is literally what it says, that God did not treat them according to their sins. What if we began to look at people that the world looks at and says they're the sinners, and we began to look at them and treat them not according to their sins, but according to the, to the eyes of, of God, to see, them that the way, to see them the way that God does? Again, we, we think about Josh in his, his high school days, and, and everyone else looked at him, and they said, you know what? He doesn't deserve a chance. He doesn't deserve a chance. And I wonder if there are people in our lives, how many people there are in our lives that we don't think deserve a chance because we simply treat them according to their sins rather than seeing them with different eyes. And when we treat people and look at people according to the ways of the world, they're a winner, they're a sinner, they don't need God or they can't have God, then, then, then it keeps us from experiencing the work of God in, in their lives and in our life. And the joy, that indescribable joy of seeing people experience God in a real way. What would it look like if we began to see people differently? Where, there's a guy named William Booth. He, the name may be familiar. He was a, an Englishman, and, and, and one night he was sleeping with his wife, and he couldn't, he couldn't fall asleep. And so he decided to take a walk. It was a rainy night out in, in London. He walked through the, the slums of London. He saw a bunch of homeless people, a bunch of derelicts, and he saw the rain falling on them, and, and his heart was just broken over them. His heart was just broken for these people. As he looked at them, and, and he, he, couldn't, he couldn't sit still as he was just walking by these people and seeing them just being, being torn up by the, by the cold and by the rain. And he began to feel something in his heart for them, began to look at them in a way that he'd never seen them before. He went home that, that night and his wife said, where, where have you been? You're, you're all wet. And he said, I've been, to, I've been to hell. I saw what hell looks like. He said, rather than me sitting there and, and doing nothing about it, I need to do something. And so he started the Salvation Army. And he says to every person that he could talk to, he says, I wish that you could spend just 60 seconds in hell. I wish you could spend 60 seconds in hell and see what I saw and see people with the eyes of God. And I, I, I think I have a hard time. I was wrestling with this, and I, I wonder why is it that my heart can so easily be hardened to the needs of the, of the broken in the world? Do you feel like that ever? Or feel like, yeah, I think I understand grace. I think I know I'm loved, but why can't I love like God loves? I think for me, I have this way of, of just dehumanizing people. I have a way of seeing if, if, they're, if they're, they're so unlike me or if I don't like the way they are, if they're a sinner or if they're a winner. I have a way of saying, well, I'm going to just compartmentalize them and, and exclude them from my community of, of human beings and just kind of put them on this, other, on this other, other side. And I was convicted of this. I was thinking about this uh, pastor in, in uh, Athens, Georgia. His name is Hal Farnsworth. And he, he talks about how he was sharing the gospel. My, one of my professors tells a story. He was sharing the gospel with this construction worker in, in, in Georgia. And this guy was huge. He was like really, really big guy. And he had uh, you know, uh, two tattoos on one arm. It said the word rape. On the other arm, it, it had the F word on it. He was a bad man. And so this guy went up to him and he's trying to tell him about, about Jesus. And, and this guy's like, look, you need to know that I've done things that you have nev you never before even begin to imagine. Like I am so bad. I'm so far out there. You don't want to talk to me about Jesus. And this guy, how he said, you know what? As bad as you think you are, I'm worse. And this guy's like, oh, yeah? How are you worse? He said, after I talk to you, after I finish talking with you, in five minutes, I'm going to go to Burger King. I'm going to get a Whopper. I'm going to forget the fact that you're going to die and go to hell. You know what this guy said? He said, you know what? You're pretty bad. That's pretty bad. And it convicts me because I feel like so many times that's me. I can, I can be in conversation with someone who I know is, is on a fast track to spending a, a, an eternal darkness away from Jesus Christ, and then I can just go get my whopper and forget that he's going to hell. Do you ever feel like that? Man, and it, it, it bugs me and it eats at my heart. I'm like, God, change my heart. I want to see what you see because this is real. And I, I think I had this, this slight moment of clarity when I was spending some time with, my, with, with Manny this week. And I, 
sometimes when, when our whole family's together, she's just like really happy and she just loves being together and she just knows that this is what she was meant for. And, and I, I look at her and I was just having this moment where she's growing up so quickly and I realize that in a moment's time, she's not going to run to the door and, and greet me like she does. When I ask her to kiss me, she's going to say, oh, dad, please, not in front of my friends. But now she, she does it reluctantly, but it's going to be a time when it's even more reluctant. And I, I think about how quickly she's growing and a time is going to come where she's going to start liking other guys and it's going to be like weird. And I'm like, what is, what is going on? And, and so in this, this, this moment here, I'm just thinking and I'm looking at her with just such like love in my heart and delight. And I, I'm just like, I'm, she's playing with my iPad and I'm going and I'm, I'm like kissing her leg and I'm kissing her arm and she's like pushing me away. And I'm like, I'm like, Manny, I love you. And she, she says her perfunctory, I love you and kind of to try and get dad away. And, and just thinking about the delight and the love that I have for, for, for Manny and the fact that she's got no cares her only care is, can I stay up until 7.30 tonight? Her only care is, is my dog and blanket going to be there when I go to sleep tonight? Can I, can I play uh, on, my, on daddy's iPad? Can I play? In, that, in this moment, that's all she's thinking. It's not always going to be like that. And if I just capture this wonder and just capture this for, for, for a moment, and then I begin to think that every, every person who spends a night in a cell in the state penitentiary that every person who turns to, to sexual promiscuity on the weekends to satisfy that longing in their heart, every person who just numbs their pain by getting drunk or getting high on the weekends or tries to fit in with other people because there's this gnawing sense of emptiness and aching within their heart and they try and drown that out by things that they know don't satisfy them. I look at these people and I think that at one point in time there was a father or there was a mother who looked at them with eyes of delight. And whose heart breaks when they think about where they are now. And they, they, they remember looking at their child and seeing so much of themselves in them. And loving them and embracing them and, and, and holding them and to see where they've gone now. And, and how their heart beats with, with a pursuing kind of love for their wayward child. And even if they don't have a parent like that on this earth. That there is a father in heaven who looks at them and sees the image of himself in them. And never forgets that they are, they are made in his image, his beloved creation. And that he never forgets them. And that he waits and he waits and he waits for them to come home. And my heart begins to soften just a little bit as I begin to understand that the way I see people and the way that God sees them and that he wants me to see them is so different. And God bridged that gap between these two things. Because I want to see, I want to see more trophies of God's grace being lifted up. That we would begin to say, God, here, bravo, God, you are an amazing God. Let's go and let's do more. Let's go. There's work to be done. There's greater things to be done in our city. There's more people who need to be brought to Christ. And it can't happen unless we begin to see with the eyes of God. But the second thing that we see is is that we need to say and speak to people as God's mouthpiece. Verse 18, it says, and I think this is the key, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Is what he's saying. Is what verse 18 is saying. That if you have been reconciled to Christ, you are necessarily an agent of reconciliation in the world for the kingdom of God. If you have been reconciled to Christ, there is no such thing as I'm a Christian, but I'm not a witness. There's no such thing as I'm a Christian, but I don't evangelize. There's no such thing as I'm a Christian, but I don't testify to the glory of God in the lives of other people. Then you can't have that. There is no such thing. There is no, like, here's a Christian, and then a, a, a witnessing Christian or evangelistic Christian or a gospel-sharing Christian is a different breed. It's not. It's not like here's a Christian is the regular model and then the SX or the HX or the EX or the special version, the factory specialized, uh, we custom made it, is, is a different version of a witnessing Christian. It's not saying if you have been reconciled to God, you are an agent of reconciliation. And so God says in verse 19 that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting men's sins against him, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He has placed that within each and every single one of us. 
that we have been entrusted with the message of reconciliation. And through us, God appeals to wayward, unreconciled enemies of God that he longs to be brought into the family of his. That he has placed that within every single one of us, every single one of us who says, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, I'm in the family, then you are necessarily a reconciler. And the question is, how are you doing this? How are we doing this? How can we do this? There, I mean, there's a lot of ways that we can. Here's, here's, here's some practical things that we can do. One, now one of our college students um, has, has said, hey, pray for me, DL, because I am going to pray every day. God, open up an opportunity for me every day to share the gospel with somebody. Every day I want to share with somebody. And that might be your way. Another way might be to Sundays after church when, when y'all go out to eat. Right? In these, these neighboring places. By now, people at China Walk know you guys and know your face. Instead of being ones who complain about how mean they are or how the prices have gone up or you're out of shrimp dumplings already or whatever it is that we complain about, how about we be a witness in that place? We get together as a group of 15 people, and they're like, hey, where are you guys from? After we've complained about their service, oh, we just came from worshiping Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. By the way, would you like him in your life? Not if that's the effect that he has on your life. Catch my drift? Like we're witnesses where we go. To be able to, to think about, okay, three people that I'm going to begin to pray for as, as, or that I've continued to pray for after this retreat revival weekend. Three people who need Jesus that I want to begin to pray for. Come to Brother Danny's seminar today. How to share the gospel without wetting your pants. Maybe that's why you don't do it, because your pants get wet every time you do it. Here's how you can do it without making a fool of yourself. Go and you'll hear there the greatest message that the world has ever known. And the greatest news that any human being could ever receive. He has committed to us the message of reconciliation. Verse 20, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. The implication here is that of all of the means that God could use in order to appeal to and to cry out to and to ask people to come into his kingdom, he says, I'm doing it through you. Yeah, through you. Not him or her, but you. Not the person next to you, but through you. Right? You, me, us, us, me, you. It's you are his means. That God is going to appeal through you. You are, I, I say this all the time, but you are at UCF because God wants to appeal to the hearts of people there. You are at Valencia because, not because you, you, you didn't go anywhere else, but because there are people at Valencia who in this season of life, for such a time as this, need Jesus, and so you're there. That's why you're at Lake Mary. That's why you're at Markham Woods. That's why you're at Dr. Phillips. That's why you're at Seminole. That's why you're where you are. That's why you're at your workplace. That's why you've been at your workplace. That's why Andrew's at Wings, and, and that's why... Uh, People are, yes, why you're where you are is because there are people there who need Jesus. And God's waiting, and he's waiting, and he's waiting. It's like, I put you there for five years. You're in college for eight years because I'm waiting for you to do something, right? That's why you're there. You're, not because you're so much smarter than everybody else, because you've done it four years longer than everyone else. Maybe that you are smarter, but that's to your advantage so that God could appeal through you. It's an amazing message. That God is, has given to us that God is reconciling the world to himself in Christ. Not because we had to get our act together, but in Christ he's doing this. Have you guys ever uh, seen or, or read Les Mis by Victor Hugo? It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful story. Uh, this guy named Jean Valjean. And, <laughs> crazy. Um, been in prison for 19 years because he stole bread trying to feed his family. He's been in prison, and he gets out on parole. He's looking for work, can't find anything. Finally, finds shelter in the house of this priest, like as a bishop. His bishop offers it, takes uh, just real nice to him. And, and at night, Jean Valjean sees this, like, expensive uh, silverware, like plates and, and, and things like that, and he, he, he steals them. And he sneaks out of the house at night. And the, the cops find him, and they bring him back the next morning to the priest's house. And they're like, aha, we caught Jean Valjean, and we've got him, and... And he says, that, he says that you gave him this silverware. 
And the whole time I was watching the, the movie, and Jean Valjean's head is like this. He's got a hoodie over him. Not a hoodie, but he's got a hood over him. And he's looking down, and, and the cop like, he says that you gave him this silverware. Ha, 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 ha. And the priest is like, I did. I did give it to him. And, and I'm appalled. Did you forget? Did you forget to take the silver candelabras also? He's like, quick, bring the candelabras. Put it in his bag. And the cops are like, really? You gave all this stuff to him? And so they kind of let him go. And in this moment, uh, the priest says to, to, to Jean Valjean, he's like, uh, remember this moment of grace. Remember this moment of grace. And when you come back here, you don't have to enter in through the garden, but the front door will always be open to you. And from that moment on, Jean Valjean goes and he just becomes a, a radical grace dispenser to all these people that he comes into contact with. And we wonder at that story because that's our story. And this world is crying out for grace. It's crying out for grace, and our story drips with the grace of God through and through and through. The moment we're saved, even before we were, even before Josh was ever saved, there was grace that was running and pursuing after him. And the moment he gave his life to Christ, and even afterwards, grace continues to run after him and run after you and run after me. This is, this is our story, and you would think this is the greatest message ever told. That we can be saved from an eternity in hell. That all of our punishment has been taken by another. That God's explosive fury over sin has been taken by another. That I don't have to live in, 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 in penalty over my sins. I don't have to be punished for all that I've done. That all the times I shook my fist at God and we've all done this. How many times have we cursed the name of God? Or how many times have we, have we done things that have been opposed to the work and the will of God and the purpose of God? How many times have we, have, we, have we complained and kicked and screamed at him? And yet all of the things that we deserved has been taken on Calvary's cross by Jesus Christ. That we could be reconciled to God Almighty because of Jesus. You would think that people would bat down the doors of the church to receive this message. But Paul says in verse 20, he says, we implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. We beg of you, we plead with you to accept our message. Why? Because we love sin more than we love God. Because we love sin more than we love this radical, free grace of God. And he says in verse 21, though, that God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, anytime someone comes to faith in Christ, as amazing and free as it is, it is an utter miracle of sheer divine power. It's not just Josh's story. That's your story, my story. Whether we were ever involved in drugs and, and gangs and all kinds of stuff like that, every person who, whose eyes are open to see that I need a Savior who turns from sin towards grace, turns from sin towards God, is a testimony of supernatural grace and power. That's why we can't do it alone apart from him. One of my uh, friends, his preaching professor, last day of preaching class, would take him to a cemetery and he would say, I, I want you to take uh, this gospel and preach it at the tombstone of a dead person and bring this person to life. And these guys are like, okay, our professor's gone a little bit haywire here. He's like, do it, preach, preach, and see if dead men will rise. And so they began to preach. He's like, louder, preach louder, scream louder, say something. He can't hear you. So they start preaching louder and louder and louder. And the professor says to him, is a dead man rising? Like, no. Like in the same way, you are completely and utterly powerless to raise a dead person to life in Christ. We need the power of the Holy Spirit 
to live in us and to work in us and to activate what we do? And do you believe in your heart of hearts that through the power of God that the dead spiritually can be raised to life? Like, do we really believe this? I think that some of the reason why we don't see more people coming to faith in Christ is because we don't really believe that God can do it. That we excuse it and say, okay, I've heard that it takes a long period of time with Josh's testimony. It took 37 years of life, and then he finally got I'm just a link in the chain. And we are all that stuff. We are all that. But do we believe that at any moment the power of the gospel is radical enough and supernatural enough that's why Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of this. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I believe that it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. Do you believe that the gospel that has saved your life is that powerful to save the lives of your non-Christian friends? Do you believe it's that powerful? Because if we did, then good night, we would begin to speak as his mouthpiece, wouldn't we? Say, I'm not ashamed of this. If it's really changed my life, then by God, it can change your life. By the power of the Spirit, it can change another life. That God may be calling us to do that, to reach out. Whatever cost to us. The great movie Schindler's List, I think, encapsulates some of what we're talking about here. At the beginning of the movie, this this uh, Jew, I'm sorry, this Nazi named uh, Oscar Schindler, gets, uh, becomes uh, rich in charge of this factory. I think it's in Poland. The beginning of the, uh, of the movie, he sees people from a worldly point of view. He sees Jews from a worldly point of view. And he gets all these Jews and he says, you know what, I'm going to use these people to work for me and they're going to make me lots of money. And they're making lots of money. This is during the time of World War II making lots of money for him, and the factory is, is booming. Things are going great. This point comes in, in, in the movie where he realizes what's happening, that these Jews are, are, being, are being unjustly killed, being taken, being treated as, as, as inhumane, not human people, and they're being killed and they're being exterminated and they're being wiped out in these concentration camps, and, and his heart begins to change for them. And in this great moment, towards the end of the, of the war, he, these 1,100 people, he takes all the things that he has and, and he says, I need these people. And he begins to buy them back, in a sense, from the Nazis. He begins to buy them so that they wouldn't have to go to the gas chamber and get killed. And so, I mean, they charge him an exorbitant cost, but price that he's paying all this money so that his people can be saved. As the war comes to a close and he's being wanted on war crimes and they're, they're trying to, to capture him, as he's about to leave these people that he has rescued, they give him a letter that says, if you're ever caught, then this explains how you've helped us and served us. And they gave him a ring. And, 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 the, and inside the ring, it says something from the Talmud. It says something to the effect of, he who saves one soul saves the world entire. And he gets this ring. And in this climactic moment in, in, in this movie, it's, it's a powerful scene. He says, I, I, I could have done more. I, I should have done more. I could have done more. And they're like, you did so much. You saved 1,100 people. You saved over 1,000 people. He says, I, I, could have, I could have done more. Like, why? Why? Why didn't I do more? And he looks at his car. He's like, if I had sold that, why did I love that so much? If I had sold that, that would have, been, that would have bought 10 more people. That would have saved 10 more people. And he, he pulls out this pen. He's like, this pen, the, the guy would have bought it. This would have saved two more people. This ring, this ring would have been another person, just, just one more person. I could have saved one more person. And, and to a skeptic, we may say, well, you know what? It's just all these people are dying. What is one more person? Think to the father, that one person, that one person means everything. It means everything, just one more person. And I believe that in our heart of hearts, God would be placing a call in us to say just one more person. Just one more person. What if we, each of us, went out and just one more person, two more people, three more people? Who is that one more person in your life? that you think they don't need Jesus and that our hearts, quite frankly, would be glossed over if they were to die and spend an eternity apart from God. But who is he speaking? Maybe he's just placing in our hearts just one more person because it's for that one more person that God would have sent his son, Jesus, to die so that they might be reconciled to God. That if there was no other people on planet Earth but this one, he still would have sent his son, Jesus, to die because he loves each of, each of us 
as if we were the only one. Just one more person, one more that God would use us to reach. We respond by faith, believing that this gospel that we believe is the power of God. Let's pray for a moment and just ask the Lord God, Father, help me to see with your eyes. Open the eyes of my heart. And if you would do that in me, God, if you would open the eyes of my heart to see as you would, then I will speak as your mouthpiece. Let's dare to pray a prayer. We sing the song, greater things are yet to come. But let's pray the prayer. Let's not pray that it would happen out there, but that God through me. What a wonder if your boy, your girl would come up in a few weeks or on Easter. And they would say, some of you know me as such and such. Some of you know me as such and such, but most of you don't really know me. So let me tell you my story. And this is the person that you've been praying for. And this is the person that you've been ministering to. This is the person that you have sacrificed and laid it down. And you wondered, God, are they ever going to respond to you? And in that moment, when you spoke the word of truth and they said, I get it, I get it, I want him, I want Jesus. And you said, really, what? Really? I need him, I need him. I want to pray, I want Jesus in my life. And you prayed and you knew that it was real and you knew that it was genuine. And you sit and you hear your friend, your brother, your sister, this girl, this guy sharing and, and giving thanks to God. And you realize, oh, the joy, the joy of being used by God. Not just to hear another person's story from another person's sacrifice, but that, that, that would be yours. And it would be your prayer triads and these people praying together and that you would celebrate together new life in Christ. Guys, this is our inheritance as followers of Christ. This is our inheritance as children of the Father Almighty who has won the price at the Calvary's cross because of the blood of Jesus. This is what is ours if we would go and claim that. Let's ask the Lord, God, help me to see. And if you allow me to see what you see, then I will speak as your mouthpiece. Let's pray together uh, for that, for those people, for ourselves. Let's take a moment to pray together. life-changing God. Open the eyes of our hearts so we might see people as you do. That we might love as you do. Oh, that you would help us to be empowered and equipped and emboldened. To go forth as you would go forth. To love as you would love. To embrace as you would embrace That you would accompany and guide us. So many people in our world have been turned off to Christianity because of the church. And I think part of Josh's story today is a story of how when brokenness came to the church, healing came to the church. In order for us to be a witness to many people who have left Christianity because of the church, it is in this context that we can bring healing and hope in our youth ministry and in our house churches, in our, our, our worship times together. And so let's pray for our church that we would become a place, we would become a people who see not with worldly eyes, but see as God sees. That when a new person walks in, whether we know them or not, that we would embrace them with the love of Christ, that we would see them and that we would not judge them according to the things that the world judges people by, but that we would see them with the love of God, with the eyes of God. Let's pray that our congregation, our youth, our adults, our house churches would be places where the gospel goes forth, uh, just places where grace is cultivated and, and, and just uh, incubators of the power of God and the transforming life of Christ uh, in people. So let's pray. Let's pray for our church. Pray for your uh, house churches. Pray for our youth ministry. Let's ask the Lord that within our, our body, within our congregation, may new life rise up. May uh, dead be uh, raised to life. May broken find healing.
in the power of Christ. So let's pray. Let's lift up our church in that way that we would be this kind of a place for the power of God to work. Lord Jesus, that you would do this, Lord God. We pray, Father, that you would come, Lord God, and that you would move within the ministries of our church, Lord God. That you would work in our house churches, Lord God. That you would work, Lord God, in our ministry, Lord God. That we would be, Lord God, places where grace flows deeply, Lord God, and freely, Lord God. Be places, Lord God, where we become bold for the power of the God and kingdom of God. Where we become bold, Lord God, in sharing, Lord Jesus, our stories and our testimonies and the hope of Christ and the message of grace with those in need. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would help us to see, Lord God, the beauty of Christ and the transforming power of the gospel at work in us, Lord God, that you would do this for your glory. Oh, how we need you, Lord God. So often in giving, Lord God, we find you in the going, we find you in the God. In looking outward, Lord Jesus, Father in heaven, thank you so much. Thank you so much for all of the people that can be affected when we begin to take a step of faith. Father, we thank you that we're reminded time and time again that you long for, 2 Peter 3, you long for people to come to faith in Christ and you long for people to repent of their sins. We're not fighting against you, but this is the desire of your heart. And that joy fills the heavens as you slam dance and celebrate when one lost sinner comes home to you. So Father, help us to see that this is a beautiful thing in the eyes of our Father. Help us to see the beautiful transformation that could happen in the lives of the lost and the hurting and the wayward and the wandering as we go forth in boldness. But at the same time, we realize, Father, that so many times when we begin to look outward away from ourselves and we refresh other people, as the Proverbs say, we find ourselves being refreshed as well. When we become insular and we become self-centered and we focus on ourselves, it's easy for us to get caught up in, 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 in our own issues and struggles and become depressed and get into a funk. But when we look outward and begin to give ourselves away to others, investing in others, seeing our joy wrapped up in their joy, then we begin to find a new life and a vitality in our own walk with you. Father, there is nothing to lose when we give ourselves to the evangelistic task of bringing the gospel to those in need. And there is so much to gain. And again, we're reminded the words of that missionary in Ecuador, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. So Father, would you empower us and strengthen us that we would live for you and for your glory. And that this week we would take steps, bold steps, brave steps to see your grace go forth through us. We thank you, love you, and pray in Jesus' name. As we stand, we're going to continue to worship.